Hello, everyone, and welcome once again to the Bighorn Podcast with interesting people and their extraordinary stories. I'm Marty Lachman, and I'm honored to be your host once again for another great story of tremendous personal and professional achievement from one of our own in the Bighorn community. As in past editions, this podcast is brought to you with the support of Leeds and Sunfine Jewelers, a member of our community for over 75 years, but still bringing you personal service in their newly remodeled store on El Paseo. And Back Nine Greens, the standard by which all others are judged, and working with their clients to create a work of art outside your home. It is with their support that we are able to present to you these great stories. Today's podcast brings all the elements of hard work, making the most of our opportunities that might be presented to us. Our guest is Ed Zander, who, with his wife Mona, have been members of our community since 2000. His story has many similarities to past podcasts, starting in very humble beginnings with parents who taught him great work ethic. But let's let Ed tell you the story which starts in Brooklyn, New York. Ed, thanks for being here. Oh, great to be here, Marty. Thanks. Uh, you're right, Brooklyn, New York, cradle of civilization, I call it. I think where everybody would do a genetic test, they'd find some roots from Brooklyn. Yeah, we grew up uh, very middle class. My mom and dad were both immigrants, came through Ellis Island, and that was after World War One. And uh, they uh, they came over. My dad uh, wanted to go to college, wanted to be a lawyer, but the Depression, uh, his dad pulled him out, and he went to work as a furrier. So he was a furrier down in 7th Avenue in New York City. And, uh, and he rose to be like manager of the firm, but uh, in those days, that's best best he could do. But but was a great dad. And my mom, um, she was born in my dad was born in Poland. My mom was born in Greece. She had a more kind of a not a tragic but a more difficult time. Her her entire family was killed in the 1922 Turkey Greek War. She was visiting some cousins in in an island off the coast of Turkey, but she survived. And then was, those days they didn't have much, I don't say much use, but daughters or females, they couldn't work. So they shipped them to cousins in Long Island, New York. And my mom came over and she was a seamstress down in Manhattan. And my dad always tells stories how he met her. And <laughs> it's, a, it's a great, great love story. They got married and moved to Brooklyn. That's where I was born and raised in a very middle-class setting. We didn't own a home until I was 13 out in Long Island and didn't even own a, a new car or a car until we moved out there. But in the Brooklyn days, we lived in a two-family house. It was it was a great environment. You know, the, those days uh, seemed calm compared to what we're obviously seeing now in previous decades. Totally middle-class upbringing. One side of the street were Italians. I was on the Jewish side. The street away was the Irish. And and you know, we all got along. We all had a lot of fun with each other. It was a great, a great beginning. And then we kind of moved to Long Island, and that's where I spent high school days. Well, you learned too how to survive on the streets, yeah. and you also learned how to, as you've already pointed out, get along with lots of different people because that was there was no other choice. 
Yeah, I I look back now because there's a, I don't know. I don't like to say what I when I was growing up was better than today. You can't really compare, but I do remember. You know, we used to travel in the subways, and I was 10, 12 years old with my brother and get down to Coney Island, which was the big place to go, or into Manhattan to, to see things. And yeah, we had a lot of friends. I mean, we, we kind of called each other names. And, uh, <laughs> you know, there was a lot of stuff that today wouldn't work. But in those days, it did work. And we, we ended up, some of my best friends were all different types of nationalities you do learn I wasn't survival as much as just getting along with one another and finding a way to operate and you're also you know to appreciate again my mom and dad not having much money even though we they all they wanted to do is to work 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 and get us to college that was the one goal of my dad and my mom well too at least from my experience and <clears throat> certainly from what it sounds like yours it wasn't that we didn't have things because everybody else was in relatively the same boat yeah. as we were. And if we wanted stuff, we probably had to get jobs or, or do yeah. things around the neighborhood to, to try to make some money. What were some of the things that you ended up doing? Well, besides the usual lemonade stands and stuff, when we got to Long Island, I mean, as early as I could get a paper out, and everybody I ever met in life has been success, really successful. I'm not saying this is for my younger audience to go do it, but I will tell you, delivering newspapers is just an awesome experience because you have to, first of all, you have to deliver them. And if it was snowing outside or it was cold or hot, and I had 106 papers on my route, you have to come home from school, and there's a Long Island Press, actually, and you have to deliver them every day. And then the hardest thing is to knock on the door and ask for money. And either they weren't home, or they didn't have it, or uh, then you know you get a tip of a dime or fifteen cents. And but I, I loved it. I did it for a long time. And in my high school days, I also got a job at a what's today a McDonald's called Buddy Burgers. And that was probably my best job. I still talk about that when I used to give a lot of speeches on on people and management. That boss of that it was a one burger place, but very popular out in Long Island. A lot of stuff taught that about customer delight, customer satisfaction, uh, attention to detail, punctuality, and I had a great experience through college. Actually, I worked in high school and in part of college. I night managed that. Most times I had two jobs, and it was about saving money myself for college and providing for the, for the future and saving a lot of money. Were you also involved in sports during that time in school? Well, I have to say, I, I'm not a good athlete, as you can tell from anybody who plays golf with me. I, I played in the streets of Brooklyn. It was great. We played uh, stickball, punchball, anybody that lived in cities or stoopball. I loved it. I loved that early stage. I, and I, I'm, I'm left-handed when I when I write and, okay, and I eat. And those that see me, I'm left-handed. But I remember back when I was about, oh, I couldn't have been more than eight years old, seven years old, playing punch ball in the streets. And my friends said, you, Eddie, you can't hit lefty. You got to turn. So they turned me around. So those that know me, I throw and I bat and I play golf right-handed. I don't know if that was good or bad. I think I could have been a better, perhaps natural left-handed. But I, when I got to high school, it was a tough time moving at 13 years old to Long Island. You lost all your friends. It was far away. It was 50 miles away. And I was very introvert. I became very introverted, believe it or not, in high school. I did. Didn't do a lot. You know, I studied, had good grades, and I worked, as I said. And I tried out for freshman soccer. 
I think I was number 17 on the bench out of 17. <laughs> and I didn't play it, and I played senior year, and almost the same thing. But it was good. You know, it was a good way to play with other guys. And that, that's about it in terms of my... I played a lot of, you know, touch football and street games in, in the community I lived in, but not or, anything organized in high school. Well, again, I think sports at any level, with any degree of success... The lessons learned are about dealing with others. The lessons are learned being part of a team. The lessons are learned to really know that you you have a place and you have to have a role that you have to play. Yeah, I, I had a great coach. Uh, he was actually, he was the history teacher, I think, that taught soccer or coached soccer. And, you know, I was on the bench almost all the games, but he he knew I was there and he made sure I felt that I was part of the team and and when we were ahead by five goals, he could get me in. And, you know, you felt, you felt good. You felt part of a team. You were helping out. Practices were important. So, yeah, I, I, I love sports, and I loved uh, to be part of an organization that really you know, did things the way he did them. And how about the academic aspect of that tenure and time? I don't know. My dad, again, it goes back to your parents. Education was important because... He didn't get to do, he wanted to be a lawyer. He never got that far because of what happened with the 1930s, effectively. So for him, there was nobody in the family that got to college. I was the first one to go. And it was about education, you know, getting your homework done at night, him providing much of the guidance. So for me, I did well. I mean, I did well, especially in math and science, which is where, and I don't know why, I just did. I loved history, those kind of subjects. I didn't do too well in the languages or the English or some of those things. In senior year, going back to the, those days, those in the 60s, you know, Kennedy got up and said, we're going to go to the moon. And I tell you, I, I talked this about this to, you know, is what we need sometimes in, in our today's politics, and as a vision. I mean, this country had a, an incredible vision to put people on the moon and it inspired me. I, you know, I got a telescope. I did uh, a lot of space stuff and math. So I wanted to go be an aeronautical engineer. I don't know, but that's just what I picked. In high school, I, I got the science and engineering grades. I didn't know where to go because I didn't have any really mentorship because nobody in my family had been to college. And But the high school you know, pointed out a few universities, and I went upstate New York to a, a school called Rensselaer Polytechnic Institute, RPI, which is a, a pretty top engineering school. That's where I went to be a double E. And you also, I'm sure, though, got real encouragement from your parents, especially your dad, about pursuing whatever it might be that you were interested in. You know, when you're younger, you dream. And I, I still, to this day, don't know how I, so I ended up where I ended up. I just felt I wanted to be an engineer, uh, electrical engineer. My dad, my, he was a little worried because... He had no experience, my dad and mom, and going to a, a tougher school, they, they actually, he wanted me to stay home and go to City College or Brooklyn Poly. But I, I figured I'm going to try, you know, go, I wanted to get away from home and, w- and go upstate. But yeah, yeah, it was always, I, I think your, your parents play such a strong role in who you are, what, what your values are, your principles are, and... I was lucky to have a mom and dad that worked their butt off. My dad worked six days a week, and on Sunday, he sometimes even went in on Sunday. So I didn't see very much of him. I saw him at night, but certainly not in the day. And my mom, even though she was running the house, uh, she would, in our basement, they had a sewing machine, and she would actually sew fur coats for extra money, which was pretty incredible looking back. 
Well, at least, as I said earlier on, the work ethic that they showed certainly helped. Yeah, yeah well, you, anybody, you look, I'm not just, I think a lot of people you interview and a lot of people that grew up, my friends, dads and moms, everybody worked in school. It was a pretty simple formula. Yeah, I went off to college and that was a mixed bag because I found out there was a lot of people smarter than I was at that school and I had everything I could do to get through it. And, and graduate. It was hard. It was tough. So now you've, you're in college, you're working your tail off. It's a very competitive situation. How does this play out as far as you moving forward? Well, for me, it was, it was surviving. I really, I, I was an A, A minus, maybe definitely AB student in high school. And I'm up there and I'm, you know, if I got a C, I was excited. I mean, I, I, I realized after one or two semesters, looking at my dorm, these guys, most of them at those days were, were men, were way smarter than I was. I just, you know, I could study 24 hours a day and maybe get a B if I, so I said, why, why do that? Let's just have a little, you know, enjoy, not enjoy yourself, but just let's see what you got to do. So I, I was a, an average student, average student when I graduated. I wanted to get through. I mean, I, I thought sophomore year, it was touch and go for a while because the courses were really hard. In those days, you took so many credits. You started at 7.30 in the morning in engineering school and labs and everything else. It was hard. But I got through, and I got my degree in engineering, and then I moved on to Boston to, to work. What did that look like when you well, went to Boston? Well, it, it's, it's funny because uh, about a year later— And why Boston? Uh, well, uh, and I'll tell you because I, I, I'm, I'm very honest about this. I— at the first two years of school, I was a member of ROTC. I was very, very patriotic, and my brother was in the Air Force in Thailand. If you notice ROTC, midway through, you have to commit. And if you commit, they give you some money, and you commit for four years in the service. And I was about to get a junior year, my brother actually called my dad and said, do not let him <laughs> join. I'm over here. This Vietnam thing is, you know, he, he saw a lot of things that he didn't like or think I wouldn't like and I was still very 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 pro about America but it, what's funny is that I'm not I don't know, maybe I'm ashamed maybe I'm not but junior senior year I just changed into uh, anti-Vietnam I did I did marches uh, not not anything like what we see today in terms of violence but just peaceful marches in Washington and Boston when I got out I I figured one of the ways I could stay out of Vietnam was to get a deferment and I did it's certain so what what directed me unfortunately or unfortunately is instead of accepting offers at companies like IBM or Burroughs in those days or NCR I, I went for companies that had an uh, ability to offer me because engineers were required to work in some of these companies a two-way deferment so I went to a company called Raytheon in Boston not necessarily proud of all that but that's the way it turned out in fact you know true story uh, three of my good friends served in Vietnam, really good friends, one of my best friends. One was a Marine, one was uh, Air Force, and the other one was on the ground. And uh, to this day, I take them to the Naval Postgraduate School in Monterey, and they have a big golf tournament in the summer to honor the Wounded Warriors and a lot of that charity stuff. And I bring them, those three, as my as my guest every year to, to play in that tournament. I really respect what they did for our country. But that's also fascinating, given what's going on in the country today. Mm. The fact that you may not have agreed at that point 
about things and you may have taken a different path, that didn't stop you from continuing to be friends and to be best buddies oh, up to this day. Uh, absolutely. We, you know, it was all, I had more political arguments in those days because I was young and impressionable and thought I was right and then I, I even do today. But yeah, there was a sense of, well, look, the, the late 60s, early 70s was a tough time in this country. I mean, people that lived through it know what I'm talking about. We had you know, the Bobby Kennedy, the Martin Luther King, the Kent State. We had, we had a, lot of, a lot of challenges and issues. But uh, I had friends that lived with me that differed what I felt. But at the end of the day, you know, we could still cooperate and, and get, to get along in terms of what we wanted to do best for the, for the country. And have healthy conversations. Yeah. And, and agree to disagree in some cases. Yeah, yeah and it, got, it, got, it could get argumentative. That was, uh, Vietnam was a real, real hot topic in those days. And it was a challenge of, of everything going on in the late 60s, of our morals, our ethics, introduction of drugs. You know, there was a challenge to society and challenge to establishment. But we came through it. And we came through as a great, I think, a better country than we were before in the 70s. And hopefully, I don't know who, what, where is going to get us through what we see today. But I'm still pretty hopeful that a leader will come along or we will lead or our children, my children and their grandchildren will figure this out. And it does come down to leadership, which we'll touch on a little later in our conversation. Okay, now you're in Boston. You're working for a living. How does that move Well, forward? it was, you know, it was my first, I, I'm a pretty, uh, I don't think people would agree with this, pretty conservative when it comes to, conservative meaning not, not a risk taker when it comes to my professional career and some of those things. So I'm working as a, a double, double E is a bachelor's in electrical engineering. So I was, I, I designed things, you know, and I, and I went to work and I realized after the first two years, everything I designed didn't work. I mean, it just didn't work. I mean, I I was really petrified that I this career was never going to pan out. You know, I was, you design things and then you try to you know get them to work. And it, I was working in a lot of specific engineering projects, and I got to do something. So I was going to my master's degree in electrical engineering at Northeastern at night during the Indian summers of Boston, and you sit there and there's no air conditioning and. And the professor, those days, chalkboards, and he'd have on these incredible equations on the board, and I'd sit there, and, I'm, and my dad said, you got to go for your master's in electrical. It's what you got to do next. And I'm, I'm dating Mona at the time, actually. I had met Mona that year, and she's living down in her home, and, you know, and I'm in Boston with a bunch of guys. And I don't know whether I got, I don't know whether I got a, a spiritual whatever, but I'm sitting there in the middle, of, we, we would break at like, it was like 5.30 at 8.30, th three times a week. I mean, this was pretty intense. And it was about seven o'clock, we took a break. And I'm looking at this blackboard and I go, I have no clue of what they're talking about. I walked out, got in my Volkswagen in those days, went home and I called Mona and I said, I quit. She said, your dad's gonna kill you, you can't do this. I said, I can't take it anymore. I'm not gonna be an engineer. I looked around, I figured, I heard people about this thing called an MBA program, Masters in Business, and um, everybody had started their semester. So I, I, kept, I called Boston University, who had a program at night, because I, I couldn't go during the day. I, had no, I needed to make money. They said, no, we started, but you can take a test for the January admission. So I took it, and I passed. I called my dad, and I said, uh, 
<laughs> uh, Dad, I got some news for you. I, I quit Northeastern. And he went, well, yeah, you can't do that. What are you doing? I said, well, I, I, I'm going to another school, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get an MBA. <laughs> Classic. He says, what, what kind of degree is that? What are you going to do with that? And that lit, that that was basically the big, first big change in my direction in my career. Going from MBA, I worked a little bit at Raytheon, and I, as I was getting the degree, I went to work for the computer industry, and that's where it all started, really. And that was your interest that you chose that because you saw a future in it. You no, know, I chose marketing because I, I figured out I had a big mouth, and I could. I actually saw things. I saw how to how to market things. Things came easy to me, even when I was at Raytheon. You know, I, I looked at. I would look at even advertising. It's, a, it's just an advertising, how to position things, how to bring products to market. The technical industry in those days had no use. It wasn't really a lot of marketing involved. I mean, it was always build a great product and sell it. I loved marketing. and I loved my MBA, which I majored in marketing. Some of my friends at, at the company I was at, was starting. there was the beginnings of the computer industry. Uh, you know, people today think... It was the IBM days with punch cards, which we all remember, those of you out there that are old enough. And then we just, be, all of a sudden, the personal computer came. Well, there was a period of about 20, 15 to 20 years in between, from the late 60s through the 70s and early 80s, where we had something called the mini-computer industry. And it was, a, it was a way to build computers that were much smaller than those big, giant IBM mainframes, much more cost-effective. Whole set of opened up a whole set of diverse in, industries and applications, but people like you probably don't remember companies like Prime or Wang Computer or Digital Equipment or Data General. They were East Coast companies. It was all based in Boston. This was before the West Coast took off. It was rocking and rolling time. These companies grew quick, and I was lucky enough when I wanted to leave Raytheon. I had a couple of offers, but one was the small developing company called Data General, which was a it was a hot startup. And I, I went in there, and I, 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 I remember one of my good bosses. I went in there actually at an engineering-type job. But I, I got in t- to talk to the marketing, which was very small, and he said to me, when you get your degree, come see me. And I did, and hired me as a marketing specialist, and, and that was the beginning of a change of a career in a great industry, which I didn't even, I was 24 or 5 years old, whatever I was. How, how do you know? that this is going to be huge for the next 30, 40 years. And, but it was a great opportunity to work in, in companies that innovated, that worked really hard, that wanted to win, that taught me everything about what I did the rest of my career in terms of when you asked me about management style and, and what, what drives me you know, to, to succeed and what I saw in these companies, which were venture capital-based companies that, that knew what knew how to survive and knew how to win and knew what were the ingredients to do that. It's interesting because I think that sometimes it's just luck. It's also a lot of hard work. It's a lot of all of the other things that have to happen for somebody to become successful personally and as a company. Getting in the right place at the right time and taking advantage of that opportunity is is really something. Yeah, I I. People say, oh, Ed, you had a great career. You, you, know, you did well. You know, a lot of it was hard work back in those days. I mean, I didn't know anything when I was in high school or even college. I did not have mentors. I did not have a family structure that knew, you know, about working in college. I, I saw my father and my mother and, and their relatives were all in the same things. For me, it was hard work. It was, it was being good at what you did and... I would say luck, but I think you make a little bit of your luck. 
But there is a lot. Look, I was in the right industry at the right time uh, with the right people. There's no doubt about it. I don't know if I could ever create that again like right now. But I learned from, and I'll, I'll talk about that maybe in a little while, but I learned from watching. I, I was a very good I could. I was very astute at watching my bosses, my leaders. But you know what? What worked? What didn't work? I always said this. I, I every time I spoke, you know, I did a lot of speaking when I retired the, the second time. And I said one of the things I said to young people is work work for smart people, work work for really successful people, work for people that challenge you. With that, I I ended up working for companies, choosing companies that were really good and had lots of smart people. You know, it was data general, then I went to a startup called Apollo, then I ended up at Sun Microsystems, which was a thing that really worked out really well. But every one of those had really great leaders and a great strategy and a great company. You do have luck. You know, you do have luck. Why, why did you go here versus here? Why did you pick that job versus this job? But if you can narrow the luck uh, measurable luck or or predictable luck, you'll do really well. And I, I was fortunate in that, but I, I look back and say, yeah, I, why did I do that? I, I think it was because of the people and the direction I saw from individuals about, you know, where they were successful. I agree with you, and it's also been a, a constant through some of these conversations. People that succeed are great observers, they're great observers of the human condition along with the people that they work for. They listen. Listening is an underrated part of your growth process because if you're not listening and you think you're the smartest person in the room, that very rarely works. I wasn't very good at that to begin with. In fact, some, my wife will tell me, Mona will tell me I'm not good at it now. I'm probably not. You know, I, I am, but I, yeah, I, I had to, I've had to work on that over the, my life. I remember when I worked for Sun, which was a great company on the West Coast here for many years, and we had probably the best sales team I've ever seen in tech. And I, this leader of, and I was always interested in sales. I never did it. I sometimes regret I hadn't done it because I think it's the greatest job in the world to try to sell somebody something. And I remember Joe, who was the leader of sales, I was with him one day, and he was, he's been around the industry a long time, but really successful. And I noticed, they would take me to customer calls when I was president of Sun, or when I was head of marketing, or I was head of a division. And, you know, I get in the room, and right away I want to, and I always thought the salesperson was the guy with the slick suit, and would go in and sell. And he said to me, what I teach all of our sales guys to do, the best thing, Ed, is to sit in the room with a customer and let him talk first. Because you'll learn everything you need to know in those first five or 10 minutes. What his issues are, what's, what does he like, what doesn't he like, uh, what does he want. And you know, I, I watched that for years and I, I just remember that conversation with him. Listening is something that's very hard to do sometimes because we all feel we got a lot of knowledge and we all know it's right and we all know. But yeah, I always tell everybody, all my younger uh, people want to listen to me, my sons, yeah, just just listen. Well, I think that's absolutely true. And, and then you can be solution driven, but they need to tell you what they need yeah. first before yeah. you can do that. Yeah you, let, yeah, you let somebody talk and you'll find out You'll find out whether you're in the running for the sale or not. You'll find out where you are. You'll find everything you need to know. Well, at the very least, you qualify that client mm -hmm. and move on to somebody else yeah. if that's not going to be the case. So tell me, okay, after Sun, which was a big time for you, 
Where do you go next? Well, no, I went to, yeah, I went East Coast, and we're sitting there, and we're living in a great town, Mona and I, we had the two boys, and life was good. You know, I was uh, an East Coast, you know, I switched, I rooted for the Red Sox, the Patriots, because I was an old Ranger fan and a Met fan. Well, I was a Brooklyn Dodger fan until they moved. We loved the East Coast. Mona's from Boston, and I'm from New York, and this is where we were family, friends, everything else. And the computer industry moved pretty quick to the West Coast. You know, the likes of companies like Intel and Fairchild and Oracle, the beginning of Apple, all with the beginning of the next evolution, revolution from mini computers to personal computers and workstations and servers and the whole idea of the network. And it was all fueled by the semiconductor industry, the beginnings of Fairchild, which gave birth to companies like uh, Intel. And you could see it. You could be on the East Coast and say to yourself, gosh, Don, you know, the competitors, the, the technology, the costs are all there. And I didn't even know what California was. I thought oh, out here, was a, all we heard was a bunch of crazies that sit in hot tubs all day and surf and play golf and the sun. And <laughs> So I, I said to Mona one day, I said, if I'm going to have a career, we're going to have to look out there. And I, I had interviewed a few years before with Apple, actually, and, and Steve, that's a whole other story, and even Intel in those days. But I passed on those and wanted to stay on the East Coast. But this time around, I got a call from Sun, which was a, a competitor of the company I was in, which wasn't really easy to, to even look at, but they were... Guys like Scott and the team were really rocking and rolling. And so I came out for an interview just to see what they were like. And I went back to Mona and I said, I think we got to go back out. And she was ready to go. But then we had a vote. <laughs> it was supposed to be unanimous. It was three to one. My son still holds against me, the one that didn't, didn't vote yes. So we moved to the West Coast in 87, which was like I didn't know anything about San Francisco and Northern California, nothing. And we moved, and it was expensive to move. We had to get a loan out on the house. And, and then I went 15 years at Sun. Everybody, you know, in Silicon Valley, you work three years for a company, and then you move on. I mean, that was the... Even though, those days, there was a little more stability. You kind of work for the companies I mentioned. Still, you moved around, but I, and I, every four or five years, I would get an offer, or somebody would call me up, because, you know, we were a hot company, and the talent was good. But I stayed there probably as, as long as anybody to work for Scott for 15 years, and we had a great run, a great run in the 90s. And then 9-11 hit, and 2000 hit, and 2001 hit. And I was tired anyway. I had worked there. I was president COO. He was, he was going to be CEO, and I was older. <laughs> so you just say to yourself, this is not going to happen. You're never going to get to run a company. So I left, and for a year, I was in Starbucks looking at business plans, and Started investing into small companies myself. I did a stint with private equity for a year, and then I'm at private equity, and I get a call for Chicago and Motorola, and said no a thousand times. You know, we might, I didn't, I don't want to go to Chicago. This board it kind of cornered me in Boston. I was in Boston. They found out, and they, a couple of directors came and visited me, and then Mona and I looked at each other. So let's go look at it, and we figured it'd be great. We, our kids were gone, so we decided to move to Chicago in 2000, 2003. That was a mixed bag. It was a tough company, big company, huge company. It had some successes, but I didn't, I didn't get done what I wanted to get done there. I just decided in 2008 that I wanted to come back west. That's where my family was, east and west. And motives. We were all lonesome for what, what we had out the west coast, our houses, the desert here. <laughs> And uh, so we left in 2008. But as a, it was a great run there in terms of the challenges and applying my skill sets to what I had learned over the years. And again, that was 
a great opportunity. It was a great time. What's your greatest regret during that period of time? During the Motorola time? Yeah. Uh, you know, you gotta, you gotta be honest with yourself about what your goals are. You know, my goals, the company was almost bankrupt when I got there, and uh, it was in a disarray. Um, just a lot of broken stuff, the divisions that weren't operating well. My regret was probably, I had set a five-year if I was getting older, I was getting into the anyway, 60s or whatever I was, you know, I said, you know, how am I going to do, how long am I going to do this? I want to play some golf, you know, uh, one of these days. So I voted, I said, let's go for five years. You know, we bought a condo downtown. We had a blast. It was good. That was a, it, my time frame was wrong. It, it was, it would have to take maybe 10 years to, to do it, or, or longer than five years, and I'd have to probably break the company up. And it, I wasn't good at. I figured out after a couple of years. My first year was always downsizing. I, I, I sold off divisions. I had to lay people off. I mean, it was getting the operating cadence to, to making money again. We had some great stuff. I mean, we got rid of some stuff. We brought out Razor, uh, the phone. We sold a hundred million in two years. I mean, it was a stock went up. I mean, you know, we were heroes. We were on the covers of magazines. Uh, you know, company of the year, CEO of the year, all that stuff. And then we, we missed a quarter, and then you're you're the bum of the year. I never got it to where I thought it could, it, you know, it was back on track. You know, it was going to now take off and I could leave. The issue there really was the, the, there was a lot of infighting when I got there, no teamwork when I got there. But my job was to fix all that. And I worked my butt off. I traveled around. I mean, I was gone 50% of the time around the world. And I enjoyed it. But after... You know, going into my fifth year, which is where my, you know, I, I said, nah, and I went to the board. They weren't very happy with me leaving. But, you know, my, my sister had gone to undergone breast cancer. My brother had some medical issues. My mom had died during that time frame. My daughter-in-law had some, some issues. It was, it was all of that, plus the fact that our houses were west and my family was east and west. And it's not justification. I, I don't like the fact that to this day, I, I probably should have, could have stayed another five years and see if I could get to where I want. But for me, it was a personal decision. As it turned out, it turned out well. The, the COO I had trained took over, and I asked him you know, do that. He ended up doing a couple years later, dividing the company up, splitting it up, selling off more stuff. Today, it's a, it's a small, you know, when I went there, it was 90,000 people and 40 billion. And today, the, uh, the government security, Motorola, brand on the police phones is what is what's what's left of it the other stuff was sold off to lenovo and google and other places so and as exciting as those times are it'll wear you down and especially when you have some other issues personal issues and things like that and you have bighorn waiting for you out here yeah in the desert. but you're taught to you know i don't yeah i could use i don't use excuses i never did you know you are i was brought in to do that job i was my days at Sun, which were usually successful. My feeling is if you can't, if you're not happy in your job, number one, don't do it. I, that's my advice to always young people. I can't stand when people tell me they're burnt out. I don't know what the word burnout is. You know, you don't get burnt out. Nobody tells you to burn out. I loved what I was doing and I worked, come in on Saturday by myself and do some things. You know, Motorola, yeah, it was, being a CEO is way tougher than most people imagine. You know, you, when, when I joined that, that company, it was January 3rd or 4th, and I had all the board and everybody else. Guess what? After you join the first day, the board's gone. You know, they're back to their being whatever they go. And and you learn that 
there's very, there's very few people to talk to, number one, you know, and two, you have to make the decisions. The decisions are yours. You got to make them, the tough ones. You got to lead. You got to provide the vision. You got to set the direction. And that's good. I mean, it's all good, but it's it's tough, but that's what you get paid the big bucks for. So no excuses, just got to go do your job. And I, I try to do it every day. And now you're back in California. Thank you. Uh, well, I came back uh, a while ago, but, you know, and then I... I, I stayed active. I, I joined a couple of public boards. I started my little investment business, which I first included my sons eventually, and we do early stage investing still today. But I do early stage investing really before a Series A or a venture capital investment, and it's been fun. You try to make money, obviously, but you try to also see if you can grow grow companies to be the next big thing, and uh, that's been good. And then Mona and I have spent... The last bunch of years, we've formed a foundation and, you know, trying to give back, uh, especially in education and health. I mean, that's the two areas we focus on. Mona's done a lot in areas like glaucoma and also in the arts area, the art cancer foundations in Chicago and other things. And I focus on uh, health. Uh, my dad and brother both died of early stage Alzheimer's. So we, we put some money and some effort into research in that area. I'm on the board of the Boys and Girls Club of Monterey which has been really great helping young people. And then I'm on the board of my university back back east that I graduated from RPI. And then, you know, I've, from time to time, I've, I've been on other nonprofit things. You know, I got I got a break, and how do we provide break for young children that, that don't have the breaks, or how do we solve some of the medical issues of our time? And then the investing has been good. And then in between, I try to be as good as golfer as you. That's getting easier to do, uh, I will uh, tell you, uh, all the time. Uh, it also must be great for you to be able to work with your sons. Yeah, they have their own jobs. I mean, they're, uh, they've done well. Mona's provided a lot of the, the basic for, I, th- I think my, my kids are pretty good character and, and pretty good values. So both of them, one works as, as vice president of Major League Baseball, so he's got the greatest job in the world, what he does. And the other one has been in healthcare for quite some time and now is branched out and doing his own consulting business on the East Coast and he's doing well. We tend to meet, we go over some business plans about new companies and we make a couple of investments. Sometimes we don't do anything for six months or three months and then we'll do something and then manage the current investments. So yeah, it keeps them with me occupied in trying to understand what businesses are about and how to grow businesses and maybe someday they can be doing it on their own. Ed, what would you consider to be your leadership philosophy? Oh, that's a that's a great question. Um, well, it's a good question. For me, I used to back in the day when I was operating. I used this for many many years. This, this I always love acronyms. You know, I always look at that kind of stuff. And I I I used the thing called VFE, Vision Focus Execution, in companies like with large companies. And, and what it is, it's pretty simple. I mean, it's not there's no magic here. Leadership, is, whether you're a manager, a director, or vice president, or a CEO. And if you're in charge of people, you really got to provide the kind of vision. Where are we going? What, what, what mountain are we trying to climb? What's the big picture here about the direction of the company? And I would work really hard on at, at all those companies we mentioned. Of, of I think that's the, the job of leadership. That's that's number one. What where is the vision? And then one level down is the focus. Where are we going to focus on for the next couple of years? It's more of a shorter term look. And then of course the execution. You know what are we going to do today? What are we going to do this month, week? So 
to me, employees, people that work for me, you have to have a playbook in front of them about how do you measure success? What, what are we trying to accomplish? And I think all too often, sometimes a CEO or a manager or a director just thinks, we're just going to go, we're going to just tell probably, let's build this product, we're going to go sell it. But I think when people go home at night, they have to understand every day what they're about to go do and how it affects the success of the company and where's the company going and what is the big dream. You know, I, I think CEOs and leaders have to dream a little bit for their employee base because I tell you, when I worked at every one of those companies, Data General, Apollo, and then Sun, we were the underdog. There was a bigger company in front of us. When I was at Sun, we had not only, we had IBM, we had HP, we had all of these companies that were way bigger than us. And we, we had a goal, we we're gonna be number one. We're gonna be number one in server computing, which is the beginnings of the internet. And we did, we made it after about six, seven years. We beat every one of those guys. We would have the, the next guy in front of us, and we said, we're gonna go take them down. And we, and we had another rule that nobody behind us would ever come up our, our tail. And you know that's, and we knew that we wanted to be, number one, we wanted to create the next big thing at Sun would be the internet. And it's a vision that if I look back in 1989, 1990, I said, we're crazy. We're, no way we're gonna beat IBM and HP. Nobody, people didn't even understand what the network was or what the internet was in those days. But, so I do that. The second thing is leadership is about communicating every day, everywhere, to everybody. I travel a lot. I get out to uh, Brazil or India and to meet customers usually, but the first thing I would do is I would have a town hall meeting, hundreds and thousands of town hall meetings with employees in every part of the world. And I would, I would talk about, here's what we're doing, here's how we're doing, here's our goals, same thing. A lot of questions and answers. You gotta, be, you gotta, you gotta take it. And, and you know what's what's going on I would do employee breakfast almost every month new employee breakfast where I would tell where I was if I went down to Brazil or India or, or China get our new employees in a room say how's it going you've been here a month what's going on so communications the other thing I learned in leadership style is to measure everything and I really mean that you know people measure oh let's look at the sales numbers let's look at well, and then it was quality let's measure let's measure quality what, what is quality well we're going to build quality products but we undertook in those companies that I was in to, to measure everything it was total customer satisfaction on all dimensions but also measuring HR measuring finance measuring legal I don't know how you run a business unless you don't have the analytical data in front of you to understand, you know, how well you're doing. Um, if you don't have measurable goal, how do you measure success? Yeah. Just to give broad statements to people, as you've already pointed out, really doesn't mean anything. You have to, in talking to those people, now all of a sudden you have a shared vision. Yeah, well, it's like today, uh, I, we were early on when we talked about diversity. You can just say it all day long. Oh, let, let's be a more diverse company. Well, what does that mean? And it's not that it's just numbers, like the number of women or the number, because you've got a lot of things behind that in terms of how you're going to educate people to understand what, diver what diversity is. But at the end of the day, employees, uh, customer satisfaction, you know, how do you measure that? How do you know if the customer is satisfied? There's a lot of variables you can put into the equation to do that. We would spend an inordinate amount of time at Sun to measure everything we were doing. The other one is, probably I should have had this higher, is hire great people. And that is, that's a, that's a silly kind of statement to make because it's so obvious, but it's not. I find sometimes, you know, managers and directors and VPs 
they want to be this. They they want they they want to be the single point of failure. You know, I am going to quit Ed, thinking that if they quit, uh, I can't replace the person. And so you know, you I wanted I wanted managers and and executives to hire people that were better than them. That was the key. If you could get over that, if you could get over the, uh, let me tell you what happened to me when I was thirty years old. I wanted to be a I wanted to be a director at, I think a director at Data General, maybe 33 or something like that, and I was managing at the time. So I had a group manager, so I, the director left, so I went into the VP of the person, so I, I want to be, uh, I'm, I'm director, I'm, I thought I was entitled to it or whatever. And he interviewed me and he said, oh, by the way, do you have a replacement? You know, I was one of these people that figured I was the most important and, you know, you don't necessarily hire the greatest people or whatever. And I said, not really. He says, come back to me when you do. Um, that's what he said. He come back to me when you think you have a replacement, then we'll talk about promoting you. And it was, a, it was such a lesson to hire the very best of what you can do. What you can do. Um, and the other thing is, is to me that was very very big in fact it's probably number one on my list is as a leader is to convey an atmosphere of uh, you know I, I people use the word ethical I, I, I think everybody's kind of ethical to me it's principled it's people that have a moral compass you know and let me tell you something when you run a company I know you can say it's black and white but there's a lot of gray there's a lot of gray that goes on in decision making every day that could get you in trouble for the companies I work with, I, I have to say, uh, I'm, I'm, I go back and I think about it. We never had SEC investigations or or employees. We were so I happened to be able to work for for managers and, and CEOs and executives that were very principled in what they do. So we 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 spent a lot of time in a character matters in an individual. It really does. And it's not just today's world. It, to me, it was back then in those days too, because you can get a lot of back in those days. You could get in a lot of a lot of sticky situations. The companies around us did. My leadership style was always do the right thing. Do the right thing implies every decision. You think about this. If you're a sales manager in China, you got a lot of different things going on there that are not necessarily that good. And when you say do the right thing, we we expect you to do the make the right decisions on these things every day, especially when you're in a big company. A lot of a lot of decisions are made every day. So that that to me was a very important leadership style that I try to get across to my employees. You mentioned people, and I agree with you completely. So what qualities do you look for in the people you're going to hire? You know, you can tell in an interview, at least I can after all the years, in 15, 20 minutes, I, I can feel the individual. Is this individual grounded? Is their feet on the ground? To me, that was always important when I talk. So, I, you know, I would veer off and talk about things like sports or family or other things, you know, just to see the kind of reactions and how they feel about things in life. To me, smart was, was important, and that's not an IQ test. You, know, you can ask a lot of questions and talk to individuals. I call it strategic agility. These people have a, an ability to have a lot of runway in terms of what they do. Passion was important to me. You've got to have people that want to win. You know, you look at the difference in sport team analogies. You know, there's a lot of teams that are the same, but who wants it more? And there's a lot that goes behind that. I like sense of humor. I like confidence, not arrogance in individuals, people that are confident in what they do. I had some pretty tough people working for me that were really good, really confident. I want them to want my job. Not defensive, 
oh, hire well. We talked about that. You know, so I could look at their background. I would ask them questions. Wait, what company did you come from? I knew the industry. You know, who did you hire? Or where did you work? And what groups and stuff like that. So ask a lot of those questions and, and do that. But, you know, that's the kind of things that, that I was taught and I inhaled that I, I looked at foreign people. And by the way, my, you asked me before, my biggest regrets, biggest mistakes, without a doubt, the biggest mistakes that I made over the years were people. Hiring the wrong person and not removing that person from the job. Staying on too long. I could go back and point to, why do we end up in trouble in this quarter? Or why do we miss that? Or why do we not do that? It was all around individuals and people. And that's my judgment. And hopefully I made a lot more right ones than wrong ones. It turns out quite often that your first inclination is... Well, you do. You know, I had a boss. I should have listened to him. I had a boss who hired me into that company called Apollo. He was a worldwide sales guy, tough guy. He's a good friend of mine still. I'm there in the marketing VP, and he brings in a new sales head for worldwide sales. Guy was an experienced resume. Three weeks later, his name was Barry. Barry came in to me and said, I want to tell you, Ed, I'm going to make, I'm, I'm getting rid of. I said, Barry, you just hired a guy. He says, I made a mistake. Got him out. I never could do that. I really gave people the benefit of the doubt. I worked, try to work with them. And, you know, I was never the firing kind of person. You could do a better job of removing, especially when you're dealing in the high stakes, when you're having VPs work for you, because a vice president will definitely influence sometimes hundreds, if not a thousand people. You become more riskier if you have a person that's not doing his or her job and, and operating at the levels you want because the effect the effect is way more than if you're managing five people in terms of the impact the results of that those are the kinds of things i i try to build my teams with tell me who are the people that had the greatest influence on your life oh everybody says but it's true with me my mom and my dad my my dad taught me work and get ahead and get education pretty principled my mom taught me all the other stuff you know moms are amazing individuals i can't you know there is a difference between a mom and a dad and a mom i don't know she told me the sensitivity parts and how to deal with people and love and you know it was all the it was all the soft things to do to make me a better individual uh and for people and so that was a big impact on me i think the person and i actually called him out in an article years ago he he was in Florida, retired. This, this gentleman, George, I talked about, I won't mention names, who was a manager in, of Buddy Burgers. It's called Buddy Burgers in Comac, New York, if anybody remembers that out there. He taught me, he hired me, and I, I was so cool because I thought I was 16, 15, and I was going to put on this outfit. And if you wanted to meet girls in those days, they we had a Carvel stand next to it, an ice cream stand, so you could get to meet the, you know, the high school girls. and <laughs> So I, I got paid like 55 cents an hour. The first probably two months, I was my job was Saturdays and Sundays to clean the parking lot out in the morning and the bathrooms outside. Do you know what it's like cleaning the bathrooms in a burger joint the Saturday morning or the Sunday morning after the drive-in movies and all that stuff? I would go home to my dad. I was I always cried. I said, you can't believe what I have to do. And that's what I did. And then I graduated from there. He let me work in the back room. I still couldn't get to the front yet, cutting potatoes, because we had French fries in those days that were cut with the potatoes or cutting chickens. So I can cut a nine-piece chicken 
I'll challenge anybody out there. And I did that. And then finally, I got to work French fries out front. And then finally, I got to flip burgers. That was the big, that was the key job. Man. You could sit there, flip burgers and look out the windows. And then I got to be a manager. And he taught me a couple of things that there was, he would sit across the, the highway with his binoculars. And if I tried to close that, the doors, we used to close at 12 midnight. If I try to close at 5 to 12, that car would be screeching across the parking lot. He would come in the back door and he would scream and yell at me. If those floors weren't clean, if he would come in in the course of a night, like at eight o'clock and do a drive-by and pull the burgers out of the, the bin and if they were cold, he'd make me throw them away and dock our pay. Oh, it was on town. So he taught me about customer delight. He talked to me, there's, there's no shortcuts. And he was a big influence. And then I think there were bosses along the way the one that gave me my break at uh, Data Journal into marketing. I think Scott McNeely was an excellent boss. He taught me, you know, he was a very principled, winning vision, you know, how to hire great people. And so he was really good in that respect. And there was probably a couple of other bosses that I took a lot from. The other thing, too, I would do, and I, I'd have to I'd tell people this, I, I spent a lot of time in the Valley when I got to be a certain position, you know, I could have, I, I got to meet Larry Ellison, so I, I maybe have lunch with him, or Steve uh, Jobs. I'm not trying to drop names, but Chambers over at Cisco. And I would, I'm a good person that would steal ideas, you know. I would look at the way they're managing. I would ask them questions. I'd read a book like Jack Welsh, which I don't agree with everything about Jack, but I would start to write things down that I saw, management ideas, how they led, sometimes the way they manage their companies. If you ask me my style, it's kind of a lot of different styles of different people I've met that I kind of had high respect for. What were your first impressions of R.D. Hubbard when you met him? I didn't get to, you know, I was working a time. Mona, got, Mona bought that house without even me saying it. I was down here for a, a son offsite meeting at La Quinta. And she had, the, the Civic and others got together and said, let's go look at ho houses. I didn't even know where, I didn't know what Palm Springs was. I'll be honest with you, I was out here a few years, 1990, yeah, 2000. Mona came and saw this house that was partially finished, fell, you know, she fell in love with it. And she said, we're going to buy this house. And I go, honey, we got to go look around. I don't know what to do. And so she bought it anyway. You know, Mona, she just does all that stuff. I never got to meet R.D. coming in. So I get here, and the first experience I had with Hubbard was I finally get to play some golf. I'm on the fairway, I think, at the first or second hole in the canyons and with a couple of guys I just met. And next thing I know, the caddy comes running down and says, and we were playing pretty quick. He says, uh, Mr. Hubbard would like to come through. And I went, who? And, he, and Hubbard, and I, I, I knew Hubbard was there. I said, what do you mean come through? We're, we're playing. And and he said, please. And so we yeah, we parted. It was like parting the Red Sea. You know, the, the, the golf carts on each side. All of a sudden, golf five golf carts. Boom, 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 boom. Hit, 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 hit. I, I just remember that episode. I got to talk to him over time. I mean, he had a, you know, he had an image that was bigger than life and sometimes in a lot of different directions. But I got to be on the, the Black Sea tour with him. We had the Black Sea, um, we had Bighorn sponsored. And I, one night, I remember, he was in the back, uh, and he said to me, come on, Ed, come on over. And I sat down with just him and I, and he started to tell me his life story a little bit. I asked him. I, I ask a lot of questions. It's just part of how I, my style. He went through, you know, Kansas and his upbringing and trailer and everything he did. And I went, oh, you know, I, I knew he, he had a lot of what I saw, you know, in terms of hard work. I mean, perfection and everything he did. 
And for me, looking at Harvard, without necessarily spending a lot of time with him about Bighorn, it's the same as the companies that I, the great companies I saw. He's committed to excellence. He wanted to be number one. If you ask R.D. about this conference room and whether it was dirty or not or something or whether there's need of improvement, he'd be, he, he was on it. He, he knew everything was going on every day. He, his vision, you know, again, building the canyons or this clubhouse or doing some of the things he did in membership. When I was running the golf board at, at uh, the preserve up in Carmel, I actually took the general manager plus the board down here to have lunch with R.D., because we wanted to, we couldn't attract members. We could, we, we were going nowhere, and I wanted them to hear. And it was a great hour, you know, where you know, where's Rice Rice about how he, you know, how he went after members, how, how he ran the place, and what he looked at, and they they were blown away with what he was. So he always, he just impressed me with what we did here, and I I think he deserves all the credit, all the credit there is in terms of where we are today. Agreed. What would you tell the twenty-year-old? <laughs> twenty-year-olds, yeah. How could they wouldn't listen to me? I don't know who put this in me. Well, work work for people that were really good, really smart. Work for companies that are really good. I try to tell young people today. You know, if you could put two or three years, and I know you want to go start your company, but maybe you go work for X Y Z company for a couple of years just to learn the basic of management, the basics of what how companies succeed how you run a staff meeting, how do you build an organization. My, my biggest challenge today is dealing with young companies is they have great ideas, great great ideas, and great maybe great technology, great products, but their ability to build the company. How do you build a management team? How do you hire? What do you do first, second, third? How do you go to market? You know, the whole distribution and sales is missing, and that's probably where I try to help a lot on. Ask a lot of questions. We talked about that. If you sit down with me for dinner, I'm going to ask you 50,000 things about yourself until you tell me to be quiet. I just like, you learn a lot, and it's, and it's good to know. So ask questions. Listen, we talked about. Um, I told you best practices. I, I am an integration of what I saw in all the people, I, all the leaders I, I work with. Um, and if you're not happy in your job, leave. <laughs> you know, especially in today's market. And uh, try new things. And then the last thing is try to develop early on. And I think everybody coming out of college, all of us generally are ethical. I, that's a I don't even use the word ethical because I think most of but, but go beyond that. Do the right thing. Be good. Very accomplished. You're going to find out there's a lot of shortcuts and a lot of great things in life. Don't take those paths. I'm getting my boys involved even now early on early on when they were in their 20s and 30s we try to give them a little piece of our foundation to, to give back we all talk about that if you're fortunate uh, like I was to get to where I was in life you know it, it's good to try to help uh, where you can as much as you can in the areas I, I applaud Bighorn on that it's one of the things uh, Hubbard did I think uh what we did with Eisenhower in, in, in the cancer work, what we do now with Bighorn Cares, what we've done. And you don't see that in many clubs. You don't see the outreach to the area you live in to try to help the underserved and under, uh, you know, the, the people that really need it the most. So that's one thing I love about Bighorn. I love that, and I love, more importantly, the people that work here. I don't, I don't think it's work. Our family. I haven't seen the kind of two ways we love them as family, and they love us as family. I talked, like you do probably, Marty, every one of these people that work here and there, 
some of them working two jobs, some of their significant others are working too, and they're all trying to get their kids educated the way my mom and dad did, give them a start. If the East Coast press could see what big old, <laughs> big old employees do, if they could see really what America is really about, which is the idea you can do anything, you can, you can get ahead, you can work hard, you can, you know, the American dream is alive, and I hope we don't, I hope we don't hurt it now with what's going on in some parts of our country, but I think, I think the employees here are just so, so wonderful. They are, and again, as you mentioned, you know, we do the scholarship program, which the charity golf tournament goes towards and allows their families to change forever right. because the opportunities are presented. Yeah. And you can do it on, you don't have to do, oh, do everything on a global scale. You can do it right in your own community, in your own club, in your na own neighborhood. Mm -hmm. And it has an impact for sure. Well, we do some research with like Mayo Clinic and UCSF, but a lot of what we do is very in our cities or towns with where we live or where we know. We, we, we've just you know, we've re relocated uh, part-time up to Sun Valley and we up there one summer and we've already been involved in a lot of some of the very important charities up there and, and work stuff up there. So yeah, it's, it's the least you could do. Ed, thank you so much. For doing this. I really appreciate your time. These conversations, they connect us to our community. They get people to know you better. Uh, even though you're neighbors with people, we don't always know backgrounds and things that people have been involved in. But just as importantly, the feedback I get is that they share these podcasts with their kids, with their grandkids, no. with because parents can tell somebody about something in business or whatever it might be but also for them to listen to somebody that's had great success, uh, that really has an impact on people. So I think there's a ripple effect from these conversations. Yeah, and I, what, I, what I tell even my, look, I have experience, that's all I have to give right now. And that doesn't mean everything I say today or is right or right for you or is right at this time frame in this decade, in this but if there's one thing you can take out of it, if you find something you can take out of it, that's that's all. That's experience is great. It doesn't mean everything that a parent says or grandparent says is the ultimate thing you should do. But you should just always listen. You're going to be sitting there someday yourself. I mean, you're, if you're in your 20s or 30s, you're going to be sitting in this room, <laughs> and uh, that's how I got a lot of my knowledge. My knowledge is through listening to people and experiences along the way and just collecting as much knowledge. I, I would, as I said earlier, I would just suck it all up as much as I could, as quick as I could. Thanks to Ed Zander for taking part in the Bighorn Podcast. Once again, these stories inform, entertain, and bring us closer by getting to know the members of our community. I appreciate the candor and openness in which our guests share their business and personal stories. Thanks again to Leeds and & Son and Back Nine Greens for their support that allow for us to continue to bring these stories to you. We look forward to bring you another episode in the near future of the Bighorn Podcast with interesting people and their extraordinary stories.